Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First Corinthians 13. To start off my sermon this morning, I'd like to tell you a story from Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14, the scripture describes Jesus as tired. Are you tired? Some of you look kind of tired. Jesus was worn out. Jesus was in Galilee and he had received the news that John the Baptist had been executed. So Jesus was grieving that. Are you grieving? So Jesus got in a boat. He withdrew in a boat to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to be alone to pray. But remember, he got out of that boat on the other side, and there was a large group of people, thousands of people. The Bible says that Jesus looked upon the crowd. He saw people who were physically sick, spiritually lost, people desperate in need of a shepherd. And the scripture says that he was Moved with compassion for them. Jesus' heart ever flowed with love. And so when he saw those broken bodies, he loved them by healing them. When he perceived those lost souls, he loved them by applying the truth of the gospel through preaching. When he heard the rumble of their empty bellies, he loved them by feeding them. And that's the feeding of the 5,000, which was probably more like 10 to 15,000. And even when he was tired and worn out at the end of himself, he continued to love. Do you love like that? Christ has called us to love like he loves So 1 Corinthians 13 here is the quintessential passage for how the church is to love one another. In fact, if you look down in 1 Corinthians 12, look at verse 31. This verse introduces chapter 13 by telling us that love is the most excellent way to live. Look at verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts... Those are the spiritual gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Which way is that? It's the way of love. And so 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us that love for one another matters the most in the local church. We're looking at matters of worship in the local church. And here he's saying in 1 Corinthians 13, what matters most, the most excellent way to live as a church is to love. So a few weeks ago, we looked at the most important priority, which is love. Love must be 
your most important priority. And we saw in verses 1 through 3 that love must be your most important priority because love gives life and ministry value. We saw in those three verses that ministry and serving others is meaningless, it's worthless without love. And then we went to chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, and we looked at the first two words. We saw that really in these, these verses, or verses 4 through 7, it's speaking about the importance of edifying one another. And so love must be your most important priority because this is how we build one another up. This is how God has designed it so that we will do good for one another. In chapter 12 and chapter 14, we're told that we are to use our gifts to edify people. But chapter 13 says that we can only do that if we are motivated and moved by love. And so verses 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 tell us what God's love is like. Or to be more accurate, what God's love does and what God's love does not do. So here you see love is a noun, right? But it's also a verb. It's multiple verbs. Love is an attitude, but it's also action. Love is a heart that desires another's good, and then that results in action to actually do good for that person. Last week we were in Honduras, and I talked to a Honduran man that was there. He's a minister there, and he observed this about American Christians he says, American Christians love to say, God bless you, or I'm praying for you, but then they don't. They walk away and they don't pray for you. And you know, what's interesting as he observed that, I thought, that's true. He says, why don't you say, if, if you say, I'm praying for you, stop and pray for us. And I thought, you know, I think that's probably a pretty good criticism of American Christianity. We like to say that we love but then we don't often take that next step of actually doing what is loving. Two weeks ago, I gave this definition of love. Love is an enduring desire for another's good that denies self and always seeks to benefit the other person. If you ever written that definition down, that's a good one to write down. Because this is, the, this is what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 teaches us. In fact, you look at those first two words in verse 4, and that first section of that definition comes from that. Love is an enduring desire for another's good. And the first two words in verse 4 are what? Patience and kindness. And these two words govern the rest of the verbs on love. These two verbs, patience and kindness, remind us that ministry has an object or objects. And what are those objects? Or who are those objects? They're people. You see, love must be patient. It must endure. It must be long-suffering because love is ministering to people. And people can be difficult. People sin. People have problems. And all we have to do to prove that it's a look in the mirror, right? Because I have problems. I can be difficult. And so I need people to have patience with me. I need to have patience with you. And in parallel with patience is kindness. So yes, we must endure, but we do it in a way that is best for that person. That's kindness. 
Kindness means what fits well for the occasion. Kindness is what is most helpful for that person. Kindness changes our agenda from just getting something done to getting people done. It actually changes our agenda from getting just getting that ministry accomplished to actually saying, I want to do this to love people and do it in a loving way. So patience and kindness are, are like two rails that the engine of love moves forward on. Patience means you're going to stick with that person and those people through the difficult times. Kindness means your desire and aim is to do good for them. And so love is an enduring desire for another's good. That's patience and kindness. And then today our focus is going to be on self-denial. Self-denial is the aspect of love that says that we need to give up our rights. We need to deny ourselves. And so you could actually t- uh, title this sermon today, Love Denies Self. In fact, just think about Jesus when he was there on the other side of that shore and all those people were right there. Jesus was tired, tired. He was sorrowing over the loss of John the Baptist, yet Jesus loved them. And in order to do that, he had to deny himself and endure and be kind. There is no true gospel love without self-denial. In fact, if you look at the next eight verbs in verses four and five and then six, these next eight verbs describe how love denies self for the good of another. So because we love, then we're going to refuse to do certain things. Even if you have a right to do it, even if it's your culture, you do it, you deny yourself for the good of that person. So let's read our text this morning. It's going to be verses 4 through 7. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoice with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit will illumine our hearts to see the truth to see what your love is like. And your Holy Spirit will empower us to love like you love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These next verbs here describe how we are to deny ourselves. We're going to look at just the first five verbs in verses 4 and 5 and 6. The first five verbs, I should say, on self-denial. So notice the first one is, love denies self by not envying. Love does not envy. The Greek word for envy means to earnestly desire something. 
It comes from the verb zelao. Zelao, you can hear zeal in there. So this is translated sometimes as zeal. In the positive sense, this zeal calls us to be zealous for the Lord and for the good of others. In fact, look at verse 31. You can see this word is used in, I'm sorry, in uh, chapter 12, verse 31. Look at verse 31, chapter 12. But earnestly, or you could even say zealously, there's that word, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Look down in chapter 14 in verse 1. You can see this word again. Chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly, or there's that word, zealously desire the spiritual gifts. So in these two verses, why are we to zealously, earnestly desire spiritual gifts? Why do we have spiritual gifts? It's to build other people up, right? So our zeal here is to help other people. We, we zealously desire these gifts so we can help people. But down in verse 4 of chapter 13, this zeal is sinful. Why? Because it's self-focused. It's not others-focused. It's self-focused. So in verse 4 is saying that love does not zealously desire what someone else has for yourself. That's envy. So this is the negative side of zeal. It's desiring what someone else has, wishing they didn't have it, but you did. Envy is seeking something you lack. Maybe maybe it's something that you feel dissatisfied in, or maybe you feel inferior in some way. And so this bitterness and this resentment settles into your soul. Therefore, you don't want good to happen to that person. You don't rejoice with that person in the blessings that God has given to them. And so envy poisons that relationship and it leads to rivalry and strife and division. And how serious is envy? How serious is it? Well, in Galatians 5, Paul says it's a work of the flesh. And he actually warns the church that those who do such things those who follow their flesh in that way will not inherit the kingdom of God. So envy is a work of Satan, and envy is a rejection of God himself. The Puritan Stephen Carnock wrote this in his treatise of divine providence. Listen to this. He said this, Envy is a denial of providence. To be sad at the temporal good of another person or the gifts of another is counting him unworthy of them. And it is a reflection upon the author of those gifts and accusing providence of unjust or unwise distribution. It's saying that God is loving to that person, but he's not loving to me. It's accusing God of not being good to you. It's a slap in the face of God's providential care for you. But also envy is unloving to that person. You might think, well, that person doesn't know I envy them. Well, they might not, but your envy will prevent you from loving them like God wants you to love them. And how does envy manifest itself? Well, envy can take place in family relationships, can it? You remember Cain he was there at his altar, and he looked over at Abel, his brother, his altar, and he envied the favor that God gave 
to his brother Abel. And so Cain took a rock and he killed his brother. Siblings in a home, children in a home, they can have envy. Envy can be like a grenade that you throw and it blows the home up. Think about this way. Kids, you might have envy. If you're, if you're a child in here, listen up. This is for you, okay? So, kids, you might have envy when you're sitting at your brother or your sister's birthday party. And you're, you're sitting there with that cake and that ice cream and those presents, and you're counting the presents. You're going, I think they got more presents than I did at my birthday. In fact, you're thinking about the money. How much, how much money did my parents spend on? They spent a lot more for this person. In fact, I look at the cake and ice cream. They got chocolate cake and ice cream. I only got chocolate cake. In fact, I didn't even get chocolate cake. I got vanilla and I wanted chocolate and I didn't get ice cream, right? And that envy can seep into your soul. But, but love actually denies self by refusing to compare your birthday with their birthday. And actually even more than that, love rejoices in your sibling's birthday more than your own birthday, Adults, we can be envious of our family members too, right? You go to the family reunion, and there's your brother, and he pulls up in his really nice car, and you're like, that guy's a lazy bum. He's been so his whole life. How does he have a car like that, you know? Or your uncle, he has the big house, and you're going, that guy's made so many poor decisions in life. How does he have all this stuff? And so you want to, at the reunion, cut him down, you know, cut him down to size. You know who he really is. But love does not envy like that. It doesn't resent a person for their money or possessions. Actually, in the reverse, love praises God that he has given them those possessions and prays that they will use those for the glory of God. A church can have envy. The church in Corinth, they were a church that was envious. 1 Corinthians 3.3 says, Paul says, You are still in the flesh, for there is envy and strife among you. And, And we can envy people in our church, we sometimes envy other churches. We look at another church and go, wow, look what's going on over there. I wish that was happening here. Or we can look at someone else and we say, well, look what's happening in their life. I wish that was happening in my life. I remember when we were first married and there was a brief period of time where we were trying to have children. And we went to the doctor and found out that we were not going to be able to have children. And that was a very sad time. But you know it's in those kind of times when everyone starts celebrating that they're going to have a baby? You know what I'm talking about? And it's painful, isn't it? And, and what's hard about that is that envy goes, I wish that was me. But that's what love does. Is love says, you know, I'm actually going to rejoice for what God's doing in their life. And, so, and it's not that it's not hard, it's not difficult, but it's that I'm going to actually love that person instead of allowing myself to sink into the pit of envy. I think about Saul, King Saul, and David, who was promised to be the next king. King Saul came into town one day, and there was a big party taking place. People were singing, and they were dancing. He was pretty happy because when he heard the ladies singing, they sang that Saul has struck down his thousands. And he's like, yeah, that's me. And then David is tens of thousands. Ooh, that caused him to envy. 1 Samuel 18, 9 says, Saul envied David. To the point where he thought, how can I get rid of this guy? He sat in his throne, and there David played for him. There David did good for Saul, and Saul watched him in envy, and he took his javelin, and he tried to kill him. 
But that didn't happen to David. David did not allow envy to poison his soul. Even think about that, because even David had the right to the throne, didn't he, from God. But David, he responded to Saul with faith in God and by doing good to Saul. A text of scripture that's helped me with this is Psalm 37. This is written by David. I wonder if David had this on his mind when he wrote it. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the herb. So what are you to do if you have a heart that is tempted to envy? Trust in the Lord. And then notice this, do good. Trust in the Lord. And I love that last part, do good. What's the answer when you're tempted to envy? It's to love because love does not envy. And that means that you do good for that person. If you have someone that you're tempted to envy, let me encourage you to do this. First of all, confess that it's sin to God and receive the forgiveness that Christ promises. But then pray for that person. Pray for them every day. Thank God for that person. Pray that God will pour out blessing in their life. And then you be the one to give them blessing. Maybe write them a note and tell them how thankful you are for them. Maybe seek to bless them in some tangible way. That's what he's saying here. Do good. Trust the Lord. So love does not envy. It does good for another. And then love does not boast. Notice that in our text as well. Love does not boast. To boast is to put oneself on display. To boast means you parade your gifts. You parade your efforts. It means you desire to commend yourself. You long for people to praise you. You hope people will recognize you. Imagine the Rose Bowl parade. I want to go to it one of these years. I'm in California now, right? You're supposed to go to it at some point. But you see those, you see those floats go down the street, those huge floats as they drive down the streets. Boasting is wanting to be on the top of that float, waving, or at least somewhere on there so people can recognize you or you can find yourself on TV, right? But I think actually love is more like crawling down into the belly of that float and it's being the float driver. You know what I'm talking about, the float driver? It's that person that crawls into that cage under the float. They don't see the parade. They can't see the parade because they're under there. Their faces are not on TV. They're cramped down there. But they have a very important position, right? I mean, they're driving that entire vehicle or whatever that thing is called. They're hidden. They're not showy. Right? I think that's love. Love is being willing to be in that hidden, tucked away position. And why is that? It's not because love is introverted, okay? That's not what this is teaching. God's not saying love is introverted. The reason that love is willing to do that is because love wants other people to succeed. Love wants to put Christ on display. So therefore, love doesn't boast. I was thinking about boasting and I was considering the truth that Boasting really is what the legalist does. Do you realize that? Legalism is doing religious works and thinking that God is pleased and hoping other people are impressed as well. 
That's legalism. It's thinking, I'm going to do this, and then God's going to think I'm a great person. He's going to clap for me, and maybe it's going to earn me some merit in heaven. That's legalism. That's it's all false religion. But what's interesting is our hearts can default and can go back to that kind of way of thinking, can't we? We can boast in our religious works, even our ministry for God. I think about someone teaching a Bible lesson, or maybe even you're studying the scripture in the morning and you're writing things down, and like you have this aha moment. You're like, oh, wow, I can't believe I found that truth. Or you're teaching a lesson, you're like, I really delivered that well. And you can have this, this sinful thought seep in your heart. Wow, I'm a pretty good person, huh? <laughs> God should be pretty impressed for, with me. I think a lot of people afterwards are going to say thank you to me. Or even, like I said in your devotions, I've had those times where you go, wow, that's really good. And I have this thought, like, I I found that. No. (laughs) That's the Holy Spirit. Anything that we have good in our life, anything that's good comes from God's grace. But the heart of a legalist is a heart of boasting. And how foolish is it for us to think that God would be impressed with anything that we do? And how foolish of us to hope that other people would do the same. God is not impressed with you. (laughs) I like how one commentator wrote it like this. Love will always be far more impressed with its own unworthiness than its own merit. That's good. Love isn't impressed with yourself. Love glorifies God. Love elevates other people without elevating yourself. And one of the problems in the Corinthian church was that they were boasting. In fact, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and let me show this to you. We've talked about this before, but it's helpful to understand it in this context. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul rebuked the church for boasting in their associations. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.12. So some people say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or the really, really spiritual people say, we're better than everyone else because I follow Christ. And how ridiculous it is for people to boast in their associations like this, right? I mean, we do this in many, in many ways. People boast in their jobs. It's like, I have a really important job. What kind of job do you have? Ooh, you're kind of down here. I'm kind of up here. Or it's like, what, what college did you go to? Oh, you didn't go to college? Oh, well, you're not as good as a person as I am. Or, or I read this person. I follow this person. One time I was in a group of people, and there was different individuals there, different stages of spiritual growth in there. And there was a person, and they wanted to talk about all the books they've been reading. Oh, have you read this book by R.C. Sproul? No, no, no. And it's not bad to talk about those things, but it was like in such a way that it's like some people are like, who's R.C. Roll? Sproul, what? You know, who is this person? And, and what happens in those situations, it can be unloving because it can be like, oh, well, I guess you're not the spiritual person like I am, so. <laughs> well, anyways. And you see how kind of unloving it can be because we, what we're doing is we're elevating ourselves. We're, we're boasting in our associations, which what's funny is, is that you don't even know R.C. Sproul. So why would you even like boast in that, right? Or, I mean, you know, it's like you went to a college, that's great, but that doesn't make you a better person. And if the idea that we would go before the Lord or other people with boasting 
is satanic. In fact, look down in verse 29, because that's what Paul says to the church. He didn't choose the smart people and the wise people. He chose the foolish. He chose the weak, the lowly. Look at verse 29. Why did God choose those people to be saved? 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We should never boast in ourselves, but only in God and the work that he's doing in other people's lives. Because it's God who saved us. We had nothing to do with our salvation. It's Christ who redeems us. It's his work on the cross that that paid for our sin. Not any work that we have done, for by grace we are saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing It's a gift of God. Why did God do it? So that it's a gift and not a result of works. Ephesians 2, 9, so that no one would boast. And let's remember, no one is standing in heaven talking about how great they were on earth. The only one we're boasting in is God. For eternity, we're not going to look back on earth earth and, and, and brag about things that we did. Our only boast will be in the Lord. And therefore, on earth, we shouldn't boast in ourselves, but in God, in what he's doing. And so love for God boasts in God. And love for others boasts in what God is doing in their lives. And so what does this look like practically? Well, if you're married or if you have a close friendship, I think this means that you should be that person's biggest cheerleader. It's easy to take pot shots at someone who's close to us, right? We know that person. We know their weaknesses. And you can get in a group and you can make fun of that person. Everybody laughs. But really, ultimately, what are you doing? You're putting yourself up and that person down. But loving that person will mean, on the contrary, that actually you speak of that person in a way that celebrates that person in front of other people. Isn't that real love? The opposite of boasting in yourself is loving by selflessly honoring God and honoring other people. And so boasting is so dangerous. It's like quicksand. The more you try to push yourself up, the lower you will go. And so the response actually should be to lift our hands in praise to God and allow him to lift us up. The sister of boasting is found in verse number four, boasting The boasting sister is arrogance. Notice, love is not arrogant. Arrogant means to puff oneself up, to inflate yourself, to be filled up with pride. Arrogance is the heart problem of boasting. Arrogance, or you could say pride is the root, boasting is the fruit. Muhammad Ali was a professional boxer, Remember his nickname for himself? He says, I am the greatest. Some of you do. Muhammad Ali was arrogant. He was very proud. After he won the heavyweight championship, he said to his opponent, when it got in his face, put his finger in his face and said, eat your words. I am the greatest. I shook up the world. I'm the prettiest thing that ever lived. Some of you can actually hear that, him saying that because you've heard that. 
That's arrogance, right? There's a story that is told about him that he was on a, a plane and he didn't have a seatbelt on. And the flight attendant came by and said, um, Mr. Ali, you need to put your seatbelt on. And he said, Superman don't wear seatbelts. And she said, well, Superman doesn't need a plane either. <laughs> and so he was humbled in that situation. That, that boasting, that pride is this inflated view of yourself. And the opposite is what? What's the opposite of pride? It's humility. Humility doesn't inflate yourself, but it lowers yourself to lift God and to lift other people up. So love is not proud. It's not arrogant. You show me a person who is proud, and I'll show you a person who is unloving. That's what this text is teaching. And pride is the cancer that kills relationships. Pride hardens the heart so that you are blind to your own sin. A proud person doesn't truly want to deal with their sin. A proud, arrogant person may say something unkind. Maybe they say something unkind to a friend, to a spouse. And then to apologize, a proud person will say something like this. I'm sorry that you think I did something wrong. You ever had that happen to you? Or the proud person shifts the blame. I'm sorry that I said that, but you should have done this or that. And that pride is unloving. It avoids responsibility, and it hinders unity in relationships. I think Jesus and John the Baptist are wonderful examples of love that is humble, in Luke chapter 7, the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and they ask Jesus about who he was and what he's doing. And that could have been a moment for Jesus to say, well, I'm the Messiah and John the Baptist, he was just a forerunner, you know, kind of push him aside. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus loved and so he was humble. And listen to what Jesus said of John the Baptist in Luke 7, 28. Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women... None is greater than John. So who does that include? Who's born of woman? Everyone, okay? Add that up. So he's saying he's the greatest ever, and why is that? Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So here Jesus exalts John the Baptist because he is lowly, because he's humble, but isn't it interesting how Jesus loved John the Baptist by exalting him? And he says, like, if you want to be great like John the Baptist, you need to be lower than John the Baptist, more humble than John the Baptist. And actually, it wasn't just Jesus saying that. It was actually true. John the Baptist spoke of Jesus in a way that was humble. He loved Jesus, and so he demonstrated that with humility. In John chapter 3, verse 30, the scripture says that John the Baptist said, he, it's Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. And so he demonstrated love to Jesus through humility. I'm going to go low so I can lift Jesus high. It's like a teeter-totter. We were in Honduras, and we had a time where there was a bunch of children playing with us, and there's a playground, and Luke Prochi went and played on a teeter-totter with these kids. So all these kids piled on one side of the teeter-totter, and he was on the other. And it was just a lot of, these kids were having a blast. You know, he would go down, and they would all go up. They go pretty high up there, too. And that was a lot of fun. I think it's a good example of humility because the only way for those kids to go up was when Luke 
went down. That's what John the Baptist was saying here. Jesus must be lifted up, so therefore I must go down. And that's how love works. Love lifts people up. Love love extols God's work in another's life. Love praises others. That can only happen when you're willing to go down and be humble. Next, love is not rude. Look at verse 5. Love is not rude. Rude means to act unbecomingly. It's the idea of bringing shame upon oneself. The Greek word used here is used over and over in 1 Corinthians 11 in regard to head coverings. Remember in that context, that was a symbol within that culture that if a woman that was married didn't wear a head covering, it brought shame upon her. So for a married woman to worship in a service like this without a head covering in that culture was appalling. It'd be like a man walking in here with a dress on. It was, it was, it was inappropriate. It was not appropriate. And so love does not act in a way that is shameful. Love is appropriate for the situation. I like how one book defined it positively. Love has good manners. I thought that was good. Good manners. It's the idea that love considers what's appropriate for the good of other people. You know, some people have this attitude. It's like, well, that's just the way I am. People just got to deal with it. No, that's actually selfish. It's actually you being unloving. I knew a guy in college who could burp really well. So after meals, he liked to burp. You know, sometimes he just did it as a habit, and sometimes he did it so he could say the alphabet and things like that. And, you know, people would laugh, think it's funny, but it was just gross, you know? The problem was when you were in situations where it wasn't just the football team or the soccer team, it was like you're in situations where it's, it's not appropriate, and he would do it, and it's, and it's rude. It's actually not considering the feelings of other people around you. And so that's, that's just the idea of, of not being rude. It's, it's an awareness of other people and their feelings and how this will affect them. Then last of all, love does not insist on its own way. Love does not seek its own. It's the idea that love is not selfish. A selfish person is like a horse with those blinders on and all you can see is what's best for you. It's easy to be selfish, isn't it? It's easy to be self-focused. Let's remember this, though. The gospel cannot go forward if we are selfish. It actually takes sacrifice. The gospel advances through the mire and the muck of this world's sin and pain with those who are willing to give up their life, to give up their comfort, so they can give the gospel to other people. If you're in a a marriage or in a friendship, and there's a lot of problems taking place in that relationship, God will not work if you're selfish. The Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So love in your marriage means you're going to give up your rights. Church, we can't truly edify one another if we're selfish. See, love sacrifices Love says, I'm going to give up that night. Oh, yeah, that's my night when I'm going to watch the baseball game. But you know what? I love that person. I'm going to give up that for them. I need to get up early to meet with this person. Oh, but I really want to sleep in this day. But love says, I'm going to, I'm going to sacrifice my good night's sleep or good morning sleep to meet with that person. Friend, if you're in here without Christ, 
I want you to know that God's love was demonstrated to you through sacrifice. Jesus left his heavenly throne. He became man. He lived a holy life, and then he suffered on that cross. And the scripture says in Romans chapter 15, he did not please himself. He was on that cross because of love. And he died on that cross, and he rose again, and now he's in heaven. And he came to die for your good because he loved you. And the only way you can be forgiven, the only way that you can receive God's grace and be saved is if you disown yourself, if you give up your religious works, you say, it's not by my own works. I gave up my life and I believe in Jesus Christ. I give my life to Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said. Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me, you got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. To deny yourself means you say, I'm going to turn from faith in me. Like, well, here's my life. Here's what I got to offer God. God doesn't care about that stuff. But God cares about what Jesus did on the cross. So give up your life and say, I believe Jesus is the Lord. He's the Savior. I submit to him. And he promises if you believe in him, he will save you. So the heart of the gospel is self-denial. There is no gospel love without denying oneself. Let me end with a story. There was a pastor in the 1700s in England. His name was John Fawcett. He had a difficult childhood. His parents died, and he was an orphan at age 12. But God used that for him to be able to hear the gospel, and he heard George Whitfield preach, and at age 16, he became a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, this pastor Fawcett was very, very gifted, and people recognized it. He became a pastor of a church in a very small, poor town. It was a small Baptist church in 1765. And he and his wife Mary loved those people, and those people loved him. But people started noticing, like, he's, he's a good preacher. He's good at writing. He had written some things. And so there was a church in London, big city, right, London, Carter Lane Church. The pastor was Dr. J. Gill. So really important. I mean, the salary is going to go up. The housing is going to go up. The people, the recognition, all that's going to go up. So they called him, and he accepted the call. So he preached his last sermon. They put everything in their cart, and they were going to cart their way and go to London. All the people came out, and they began to hug each other and love each other and, you know, just the, the church, and they were crying. And as they sat on top of their cart there, Pastor Fawcett and his wife Mary looked at those people and they begin to cry. And she says, I can't do this, John. I can't do this. And he looked at her and said, I can't do this either. And Pastor Fawcett considered those people and he knew that love did not envy the more prominent position. But love rejoiced in God's work there. That love did not boast in having his name on the sign at that London church. Love did not desire to be lifted to a high position, but love was content to be in that humble place in the work of God for those people. Love would put those people first and give up the bigger paycheck for the good of those people. And so Pastor Fawcett and his wife Mary got off that cart 
and they stayed at that church for 54 years. And he wrote a song to remember why he stayed, and it's called Bless Be the Tie That Binds. And if you know this song, I'll sing it for you, and then we can all sing it together. It goes like this. Bless be he the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. You already know it. He denied himself to love those people. How are you denying yourself to love God and love his people?